And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open a copy of God's life-giving word to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 1, starting in verse 2 this morning. So James chapter 1, verse 2, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there in the rows, it will be uh, page 1011, okay, page 1011. My name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here of Redemption Hill, so if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, uh, I would love to do so after the service and have uh, the privilege of getting uh, to know you a bit before you leave this morning. So um, as, we, uh, as we move into a time of hearing God's Word Uh, Let's pray one more time and ask God to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here this morning. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful day that it is outside, and we pray, Lord, that uh, the light of your grace would shine in our hearts even now as we open your word, Lord. May we not simply go through a kind of religious routine, but Lord, we pray that we would, as James will later tell us, receive your word with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. So God, I know that you desire to do a great work in our hearts, even now. So we pray that your spirit would have his way with us as we open up your word, Lord. You do only what you can do as we receive this word, which is from you. Uh, Through Christ we pray, amen. Helmut Tillicke was a German pastor and theologian in the late 20th century. He had actually lived through Nazi Germany in World War II, so he had seen a fair amount of suffering in his his day. And he was a well-known pastor and theologian, so he actually came to America on a series of lecture tours um, in the the 1970s, and he was asked upon his, his leaving America, hey, what was, was one thing that you observed about the American church? What do you believe is their greatest difficulty and challenge? And Helmut Pilake said this. He said, they have an inadequate view of suffering. Now, someone who had walked through some of the the most horrific suffering the world has ever seen, certainly had uh, probably uh, the, the ability to assess if a people were acquainted with suffering and had had a view of suffering that would be adequate to face the trials that may come. And so I want you to think about, consider now, uh, almost 40 years later, has this changed in the American church? Has it changed in our hearts? And what is our view of suffering? You see, some people would say that suffering has no place in the Christian life. This is kind of the health and wealth message, you know? Hey, you know, uh, exercise enough faith, be a good enough Christian, name that, that this good thing is going to happen, and then God will surely do it. He will bless us in every case, and suffering uh, must not be from God because Christians never suffer. Well, the only thing wrong with that is like the cross of Jesus Christ, you know, and the fact that he said, in this world you will have trouble. Okay, so we can kind of discard that view of suffering, but then some would say, well, then suffering is just only a, a result of our sin. We see this in the Bible from Job to the Gospel of John with the blind man. Surely it was this man sinner. Did his parents sin? Is this the issue with him? This is another inadequate view of suffering. Then some would say suffering is a sign of weakness. 
Only weak people really suffer, not, not the strong. If you, if you really, you know, love God and are filled with the Spirit, then, then you're going to be able to face anything in life, and, and, and so suffering must be a sign of weakness in you. And then others, and this is worst of all, others would conclude that suffering is a result of God either not caring about our world, not loving us enough, or if he loves us, he must not be strong enough to deal with the suffering that we face on a daily basis in this fallen world. Now, all of these views of suffering are entirely inadequate. And James is going to help us understand what our perspective, our view of suffering should be, and he's going to press us really deeply into how we should view suffering and trials in this life. So as we begin to break down this uh, letter of James, passage by passage over the next 12 weeks, as we talked about last week, what we're going to see is the book of James addresses the very practical details of life on a daily basis. He's going to encourage us to live out our faith all day, every single day of our lives. And he begins with this area that I know we all face, the area of trials and suffering. So James is going to give a very strong encouragement in these opening verses, and he's going to give a very surprising message and talk about how we can experience surprising joy in the midst of trials. We can experience surprising joy in the midst of trials. If you remember from last week, and if you missed last week, by the way, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the introductory sermon, not because it was such a great sermon, okay, if John was preaching that I could say that, or right, am I going to say this? But I'm just saying, go back and listen to it because it will provide the context for where we're going in the rest of the book of James. And we saw there that James was writing to a persecuted people who were former members of his church in Jerusalem that were under persecution there in Jerusalem and scattered out in the diaspora or the dispersion, as he says. If we look back at verse 1 in James, he'll say, greetings to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the, the, the believers in the Jerusalem church, they were persecuted, they were scattered, and, it, and you would understand that when you're uh, displaced from the comforts of your home, you are likely to experience some, some difficulty and trial in life. And this is exactly what was going on for these believers. They were separated from friends and family. Many experienced persecution. Many seemed to be impoverished, and not only impoverished, being displaced, but also under oppression from those around them. And so James cares about his people that have been scattered, and he writes this letter to them to encourage them to press on in their faith. And so in light of their suffering and trial, James is going to instruct them with these words. He's going to say, walk through trials with joy because they provide an opportunity for rich rewards. Okay? Walk through trials with joy because they provide an opportunity for rich rewards. What does James say about trials? Let's look at verses two through four together. James writes and he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, these first few words of verse two, if we're just kind of being honest this morning, which is a really good idea, these words kind of just slap us in the face, do they not? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, James does not hold anything back here. We are to have an attitude toward trials of one of full and complete joy. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, man, James, come on, like, dude, uh, are you having kind of a bad day here? Like, are, are you thinking clearly? Are you, are you a little off your rocker at this point, James? How can you say, count it all joy? Don't you mean count it all misery? Count it all despair? Count it all frustration whenever you meet trials of various kinds? But James says, no, count it all joy. How can we understand these audacious words from James, the pastor of the scattered church in Jerusalem? Well, first we should ask the question, what is a trial? What are we talking about when we talk about trials in life? A trial can be uh, defined as any form of suffering we encounter that tests our resolve to press on. Okay? Any form of suffering we encounter that tests our resolve to press on. So when a trial comes, resistance comes. When trials come, a testing of our faith comes, and it tests the sincerity of our faith in God when our life is shaken at its foundations to whatever degree that it may be shaken. So James says, Count it all joy because God is going to work in you through these testings to show that your faith is sincere. And if you remember from last week, we said that people are looking for both relevance and sincerity. They want to see that the Christian faith is relevant on the one hand, but they also want to see that Christians are sincere about their faith on the other hand. And he's going to say, man, trials give an opportunity for you to display that. And then James also says, Trials come in all shapes and sizes. We know this to be true, right? I mean, there's no one size fits all kind of trial. They come in a variety of forms. And, and listen, as a pastor of this church, if you've been around Redemption Hill for, for, for a year or so, I guarantee you I could, I could just have a conversation with you after the service and say, you know what, I know you've been going through this, this, and this because we talk enough and because we're, we're informed of what's going on in one another's lives. I know that all of us in here face trials of various kinds. I mean, is there anyone here this morning that's saying, you know what, man, my life is so perfect, I'm so great, you know, that, that I don't face any kind of suffering or difficulty or trial? I mean, is anyone just kind of like, because if so, like everyone wants to hang out with you and like learn the secret, you know what I'm saying? So, so no, we, we all face trials of many kinds. Just consider some of these. I'm, I'm sure that you can identify with many of them. I pray that they don't come your way anytime soon if you haven't, but here are just a, a sampling of trials that we face in life. Financial crises, job pressures, oppressive bosses, difficult transitions in life, family burdens, the sickness of friends and family, and perhaps even our own sickness. Cancer, 
the death of a loved one. Relational tension between friends, marital strife, difficulty with children, abuse in a variety of forms. Trials related to housing. This can be one in Boston, right? Rising rental rates, you know, landlords that just don't get it, you know what I'm saying, except for what's in it for them. Here's a big one. Unfulfilled desires. Think about this. I mean, have you ever had the thought or have you ever said, man, I thought my life would be like fill in the blank. I mean, I'm sure if we're being honest, we all could say that to a degree. Man, I thought my life would, would, would have turned out like this by this point. And so most, of, most all of these, these scenarios are various trials that we face on a regular basis. James says, hey, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, he knows that they are varied and they come from all different angles. And what I love about James is at the very beginning, he acknowledges the presence of these difficult trials, okay? So it's not like, you know, James isn't, isn't um, you know, stepping into fantasy world and says, you know, if we ignore it, it will go away. If we dismiss these trials, then they really won't hurt us. Nor does he go into Mr. Fix-It mode, which is what a lot of men do. Men, let me pick on us for a minute. We just want to kind of fix it, right? So he doesn't say, hey, you know, uh, suffering Christians, just wait a couple months, man. Everything's going to be all right. Those are very foolish words. Everything will be okay. It's going to change. I know we want to say that because that's what we want. But when you're counseling or encouraging a friend, do not let those words be the first words out of your mouth. Hey, it's all going to be, be fine. It's all going to change. That's, that's not what people need to hear when they're going through suffering. Now, I know that a lot of times those words are loaded with, hey, there's a God who loves you. There's a God who reigns on his throne. There's a God can, who can walk with you through the suffering. And, and that is certainly correct. But we don't want to give false hope as if our circumstances are going to immediately change. Nor does James say this. You're the victim. Feel sorry for yourself. Let others feel sorry for you too. Eat some chocolate and ice cream. You know what I'm saying? I mean, having a bad week. Go to the fridge. His message is very different from the message we hear in the world and the message that we want to tell ourselves. Instead, James says the shocking words, count it all joy. How can he say this? I mean, let me just pose this. If if this sounds crazy to you, If you feel like we're kind of riding on the crazy bus here, saying, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, then maybe Tillichay's words about the American church are true of us. Perhaps we still have an inadequate view of suffering. So James, as he's saying this, listen, and let's be very careful here. James is not instructing his people to seek out more suffering, okay? Nor does he say that suffering is is painless and stress-free, okay? James, of all people, he was still dwelling in Jerusalem where his life was on the line. So James is acquainted with suffering and persecution, and he understands that, that trials in life are like a burden that just weigh you down and want to debilitate you from pressing on 
in life. So we're not saying that trials are easy, that they're light, that they're a breeze. This is not what James is saying, but he does say that we can still count our trials as joy. So what is Christian joy? If we're going to talk about joy, if we're going to talk about experiencing joy, surprising joy in the midst of trials, what is joy? Well, one way to define it might be this. Joy is a state of settled contentment and delight in the heart given by God. You might want to write that down. Joy is a state of settled contentment and delight in the heart that's given by God. You notice in verse 2, you might have missed it. James is writing to brothers. So this is a, a Greek word that, that means brothers and sisters in a family, siblings in a family. He is writing to the people of God, the church. So already implied in what James calls these people, the family of God, there is the implication that the Christian has resources to deal with any kind of trial because they know the God of this universe. There will never be a trial that you will face in this life that God has not put all of his resources at your disposal. And let me say that again. There will never, that's a bold statement, there will, there will never be a trial that God will allow you to walk through that he has not put all of his resources at your disposal if you belong to him. So first, James is writing to these, this family, but then on top of that, not only is joy given by God, but joy cannot be assaulted by our external circumstances. So that's why we say that it's a settled state of contentment and delight in the heart. Joy comes from within. It's not a, a fleeting emotion, but it's more of an attitude, a state of being, because God puts this in us that we can have contentment and delight in life, no matter how rocky our life may be. And so James says, this is how we should think about our trials. We should count, or as some translations say, the very first word in verse two, we should consider it all joy when we make meet trials of various kinds. So, so we have to understand that there is a battle going on for our thought life and for the attitude of our minds. And this is especially true when we go through times of difficulty and suffering. So how can then James say this? Can consider it, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I want to give you four reasons why James can instruct us to count it joy in the midst of trials and suffering. Number one, consider, it, consider trials a joy because we are growing to be like Jesus. All right? Consider trials a joy because we are growing to be like Jesus. Verse three begins to provide reasons for how we can count trials joy when he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So whenever you face a trial in life, each trial holds the capacity to develop steadfastness or perseverance in your soul. The word steadfastness conveys a, 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 the idea of having a tenacious spirit in the face of life's storms. 
So James says, persevere, have this tenacity about you. And the idea of perseverance undercuts two myths about trials that we need to do away with this morning. And I alluded to one of them earlier. Number one, some people say trials mean that we are weak. That's a wrong assumption about trials. Trials do not mean that we are weak. They rather give an opportunity to display the strength of God that is at work in our lives. But then number two, some would say, well, trials render us useless for God. Man, we're, we're going through such a difficult time. We're meeting such resistance in life that we don't feel like we could ever be used for God and his kingdom. And listen, for the Christian, this is exactly what Satan wants us to believe. He cannot touch our salvation if we are in Christ our salvation is indestructible. John read that this, this salvation is being kept in heaven by the power of God. That's enough power to keep us in the faith for all eternity. But what Satan does want to do is he wants to cause us to stumble and to be not used by God to the fullest measure that God desires to use us. But you see, neither of these things have to be true when we face trials. Trials do not mean that we are weak, nor do trials render us useless. And all we have to do is go back to the Apostle Paul. You remember just two weeks ago, we looked at this man named Paul whose life was absolutely marked by suffering. Just read the book of Acts, read the letters of Paul, and you're going to see how afflicted he was for the sake of the gospel. And yet, he was used by God to, to take the gospel and penetrate three parts of three different continents in starting churches on mission with Jesus. So what does is, what is 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10 say that help us understand um, how these myths are not true? This is what Paul writes. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, and hear these words this morning, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of God may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The weaknesses that come in our life as we walk through trials give opportunity for God to show his power in our lives and for us to be used by God through uh, any trial that comes our way. Not only this, trials, as James goes on to say in verse four, they produce, it produces maturity in our lives. Let's, he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, so this is the goal for the Christian. And this is how we, what is the aim of, the, of, the, of our lives? It's to glorify God, right? To, to, to show how great he is. And so how do we do this? Well, we live our lives for him and we become more and more and more like Jesus. 
each and every day, each and every week, each and every month, each and every year. And this is a process, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process of progress as we put off the old person that didn't live for God, and by God's grace and spirit, we put on the things that resemble Christ and belong to God, that fruit of the spirit. And so I love how James says it here. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, let steadfastness, this work that God is doing in trials to finish its work, to complete its job so that we'll be mature, complete, lacking in nothing, that our spiritual deficiencies will slowly uh, be uh, eroded away and that we can then grow up to be like Christ. So first, James says, consider trials a joy because we are growing to be like Christ. But then in verse five, it seems like James is changing the topic a bit, but that is certainly not the case uh, as he goes on and he says, for if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So how are we to respond in the midst of trials? Okay, you really need to pay attention to verse five. Because what trials do, typically speaking, in a person's life is they will either drive us toward God or they will drive us away from God. And so James says from the outset, when trials come, your first move should be to go to God in prayer and ask God for wisdom. And if we were to, 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 to study down on this verse, we would see that the sentence is constructed to assume the presence of the lack of wisdom. So it's, it's implied, hey, yes, you lack wisdom when you're in the midst of trials, Okay, so just assume that about yourself, okay? I know it's kind of humbling to say, hey, I don't have it all together, but when we go through trials, we need the wisdom of God. When you see a friend going through trials, you can assume that they need your prayers for wisdom so that they can navigate through these trials by God's grace. And why is this so important? Well, it's so important because wisdom leads to righteousness and life. There are really two paths that is set before every person in this life. It's the path of wisdom and life or the path of folly and death. And James says, look, when you're on experiencing trial and suffering, ask God for wisdom. Pray that, that he would fill you with wisdom so that you can experience the path of life. And he says, as you're, as you're asking God for wisdom, ask in two ways, okay? Number one, ask repeatedly, all right? This, this uh, verb, ask, is, is a continuous action. It's to be uh, something that we come to God again and again and again, not just one time saying, hey, God, I need some wisdom here, but we ask for, for it continually as we walk through difficulty in life. But then also he says to pray in faith, we are to lean hard into God, praying in faith. And this refers to a, a confident trust in the character of God to provide for us in the midst of our trials. So he says, look, 
When you come to God, be so convinced of who God is and his love and his mercy and his grace and his, and his generosity to know that God is waiting to distribute wisdom to you. Don't be like the person who doubts because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, okay? And think about it not in terms of like a wave crashing on the shore necessarily, although that could, could kind of fit the example, but it's more like a wave out in the swell of the ocean that's constantly moving up and down. It shows the, the kind of the vacillating between two opinions of God. You know, God is able, God is not so able. God is worthy of my trust in this trial. God is not so worthy of my trust in this trial. He may not really care about me at this point. So James says, look, if this is, if this is where you are, you are a double-minded man. You're a double-minded person. In other words, you, you, you are thinking two ways about God. You are double-souled. So he says, look, trust in who God is because God is Father and God delights to give good gifts to his children. So Proverbs 2, verse 6, it says, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So let me ask you this morning, in the midst of your trials, number one, are you going to God? Is that your first move as, as James instructs us? And are you experiencing the generosity of God? Because God has all of the resources in the world to give to his children. And we never, ever have to doubt God's desire to, to meet our needs. Because as Paul says in Romans 8.32, For if God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So when you doubt, go back to the cross, trust in what Christ has done for us on the cross, and be convinced that God wants to distribute good gifts to his children. Do you want another reason we can count trials a joy? Number three, count trials a joy because we can boast of our spiritual condition, all right? Consider trials a joy because we can boast of our spiritual condition. This is what we see in verses 9 through 11, some really great verses on the, the reversal that takes place when someone comes to faith in Jesus. It says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So these verses highlight the, the startling nature of the upside-down kingdom of Christ. He says that, that the lowly brother should actually boast in his high standing, his exalted position, but the rich should boast in their humiliation. Now, my sister and I were just walking down Boylston Street on Friday afternoon in Boston. And if you've ever spent much time in downtown Boston, you know that you're going to see all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life. And I couldn't help but think as we were working through James, as we passed many homeless people, some who had very few possessions, who maybe had a, like a U-Haul blanket for their covering at night, seemingly have nothing to boast about in this life. And then just 
A couple of blocks later, we're walking past the Four Seasons Hotel and we almost get clipped by a Porsche that's like coming up for valet service and these people all put together, the posh, rich, you know, they, they seem to have it all together. You kind of can't help but look to kind of like, who are these people and, you know, why are they paying six, seven, whatever it is, you know, $100 a night for this hotel and driving this car? I mean, it's probably pretty cool, but, you know. And they seem to have it all together, right? The the rich seem to be exalted and the poor seem to be humiliated. But God says, let the poor boast in their exaltation. Let the rich boast in their humiliation. How can he say that? Well, it's because in the kingdom of Christ, the poor brother actually has it all in Christ There's nothing that we lack, spiritually speaking. And the rich person understands that this life is soon passing away. The the, the riches of life are fleeting. And all that matters in the end is where a person stands before God. So we need to understand as American Christians who live in a very materialistic society, that our economic status does not define us, Jesus does. Our economic status does not define us, Jesus defines us. So whether you may be on the poor side of the equation, look, you should be encouraged because in Christ you have everything. And even if you may be on the uh, more wealthy side of the equation, you should also be encouraged and boast because even though your riches are gonna be here today and gone tomorrow, and that's surely the case, You can boast because your standing in Christ will never change. It is never fleeting. So we can count uh, trials a joy because our spiritual condition is sealed. And this comes out in vivid colors when we face trials of many kinds. And then finally, James would say, consider trials a joy because God will reward us at the very end. Look at verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So James says, look, if you remain steadfast, if you persevere even through the various trials in your life, you should consider yourself blessed And some people would say, you know what, you can just translate the word blessed and it means happy. Just, you know, be happy because this is what God has done in your life. But the biblical meaning is so much deeper than that. It means that the favor of God rests on you. That those who persevere under trial, counting it all joy, trusting in God, depending on him, growing to be like Christ, having this spiritual condition that is unchanging, We have the favor of God resting on us. And it says that in the end, we will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this is the picture of the athlete in in, uh, ancient Greece who would have received the the, the laurel wreath that that goes to the, the victor after an athletic competition. And so when all is said and done, this, this, this crown, this, this victory crown that we will wear is what? It's the crown of life. This is the greatest crown we could receive is to, to spend eternity with God, full of life, full of the way that God designed us in the very beginning to live eternally with him. 
So Christian, listen, if you're going through difficulty and trial, be encouraged to let this vision of the crown that Jesus will give us one day to motivate you through the difficulties in life. And I know this makes us nervous sometimes with like, you know, salvation is by grace. It's not of ourselves. We're not about Christianity for what's in it for us. But let me just tell you, man, the Bible says there's a lot in it for us. There is treasure in heaven. And whatever that means, that should motivate us to want to live for God. Not because we're going to get there and say, man, God, look at me. I mean, we only boast in Christ. But still, this motivates us to press on because the crown of life will be ours as we persevere through trials in life. And also, let me speak to those who are not yet Christians. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Not only are riches fleeting away, but our lives, as Tommy said earlier, are passing away. So are you sure that you will receive the crown of life? When you stand before God, will, will you receive the life that he wants to give you, eternal life with him forever? Or will he say to you, I never knew you. You didn't glorify me with your life. You never trusted in me to save you. If that's you this morning, let me plead with you to call out to God. John 3, 16, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, it gets no more clear than this when uh, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a cruel death so that we who look to him can experience life with God forever. So as we think about these opening verses in the book of James, we see how he wants our faith to impact the very details of our lives. And he starts with what is so common to us, suffering and trials. And he says, you know what? Do not waste your trials. Do not waste your suffering for even a day, but maximize every single day for God's glory by counting your trials a joy because they are producing growth in Christ. They are causing us to depend on God. They remind us of our sealed spiritual condition and one day they will result in the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So as we conclude, let me just, let me just ask this final question. What should be our greatest motivator to persevere through the trials of life? And the answer is always the same at Redemption Hill. It's the gospel, right? It's the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us and how his gospel, his grace, empowers us then to live our life. So the writer of Hebrews would put it like this to some other Christians who were uh, being persecuted and, 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 and considering stepping back in their faith. He would say this in Hebrews 12, verses one through three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, with steadfastness, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now listen, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured 
from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted. So let me just ask you this morning as we, as we wrap up and as we move into a time of prayer and response, what is the greatest trial you are facing in your life right now? It may be uh, uh, some stresses in your family. It may be stresses in the workplace. It may be sickness. It may be dealing with the death of a loved one. Perhaps it's something smaller than those kind of trials. What is the greatest trial for you right now? Know that God has his design in all phases of our life to cause us to come to him and to count it all joy that we might glorify him through these trials. So what I want to do as we pray, I want to invite you to go ahead and be living out verse 5 of this text. If any of you lacks wisdom in the midst of your trial, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So as we pray, I want to invite you, name that trial, go to God and say, God, I need your help. I need your wisdom. And I am confident as you ask in faith, he will supply it. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would not only make the, the trials in our life very clear to us this morning, but that you would convince us that in some surprising and mysterious way, we can count our trials a joy. So Lord, we pray that, number one, you would give us faith to believe your word, and number two, that you would give us wisdom for the trials that lie ahead. God, I pray for each person in this place, whatever, whatever trial they may be facing, Lord, I ask that you would uh, give them wisdom to endure, to, to, to persevere, to press on, to, to, to find sufficiency in you for everything that assails them. And Lord, I pray that they could do so in the, in the context of this community of faith with brothers and sisters who want to encourage them and also pray for them and, and walk through trials together, bearing one another's burden, fulfilling the law of Christ. So Father, may we be a church that when we experience suffering, we do not retreat back from you, but that we would go to you and our faith would shine like lights in the world and other people in Medford and greater Boston would see that there is something radically different about the way that we suffer so that more and more people would come to faith in Jesus. Father, I pray for any person here today who needs to receive that crown of life one day that they would place their faith in Christ, turning from their former life, turning to a new life in Christ so that they can experience the joy of salvation that we know through him. It's in his name we pray today, amen.